Part 2, Chapter 2 of The Uttermost Star. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ross Moore, Indianapolis. The Uttermost Star and Other Gleams of Fancy by Frank W. Borum. The Will o' the Wisp. Oh, the Will o' the Wisp! The Will o' the Wisp! What tales we have heard of the Will o' the Wisp, hovering over the reedy mere, dancing across the misty marshes, fluttering round the dank lagoon, flickering over the spongy moorlands. Who has not met with the Will o' the Wisp? Child of the bog and the swamp and the fen, haunting on foggy autumn nights the soft morass and the slimy quagmire, he is known by a score of expressive and sinister aliases, but we are not confused by the multitude of his ugly names. Whether the country people call him Old Spunky, or speak with terror of Jack-o'-lantern, we recognize under each such fearsome title or description the familiar features of Will-o'-the-Wisp, how the flesh creeps as we read in the quaint pages of Ben Jonson and Robert Burton, of John Fletcher and Francis Beaumont, their hair-raising stories of Will-o'-the-Wisp. In the first book I ever read, I made the acquaintance of Will-o'-the-Wisp. It was Mary Godolphin's Sanford and Merton, a special edition prepared in words of one syllable. I have it still, and a record on the flyleaf shows that I read it first when I was in my sixth year. But I remember the tense excitement with which I followed the adventures of Hal Sanford on that night in which he was lost on the lonely moor. In front of him, he saw a dim and fitful light which he took to be a lantern carried by some more fortunate traveller. The light zigzags to and fro, and Hal concludes that his fellow traveller is drunk. But drunk or sober, he longs to reach him and enjoy some kind of human companionship. He presses on until he finds himself becoming entangled in the marshes, and at last falls headlong into a slimy pit. But Hal says Tom Merton, as he listens to the story afterwards. Did you find out what that light was that you saw in the marsh? Yes, said Hal. It was the will-o'-the-wisp. Thus, as old John Gay sings, will-o'-the-wisp misleads night-faring clowns or hills and sinking bogs. It may be with will-o'-the-wisp, as with most of us, that he is not so black as he is painted, it is possible that his elfish tricks have been exaggerated by those who have placed his antics and vagaries on record. Perhaps he is not so fond of damp old churchyards and places of execution as some of the novelists would have us believe. But he is a mischievous little sprite, for all that. Just listen to his song. When night's dark mantle covers all, I come in fire arrayed. Many a victim I've seen fall, or fly from me dismayed. Many a traveller I deceive, and with their parting breath I hear them call in vain for help, and dance round them in death. Will-o'-the-wisp, they trembling cry, Will-o'-the-wisp, tis he! To mark their fright, as off they fly, is merry sport to me. I dance, I dance, I'm here, I'm there, who tries to catch me, catches but air. The mortal who follows me follows in vain, for I laugh, ha ha, I laugh, ho ho, I laugh at their folly and pain, I laugh at their folly and pain. I do not propose, in these fugitive paragraphs of mine, 
to attempt to reduce the subject to the terms of precise definition and exact treatment. Others have ventured upon that task, and, according to his wont, Will-o'-the-Wisp has invariably eluded them. Friedrich List, the German philosopher, came upon Will-o'-the-Wisp one night on the edge of a swamp, and held his hand in the luminous glow, yet felt no warmth. Nor also came upon the sprite, and persuaded him to stand so still near the fringe of a marsh that he was able for a quarter of an hour to touch him by extending his walking-stick as far as he could reach over the water's edge. Yet when, at the end of that time, the light suddenly flitted away, and Nor felt the feral that had been so long in the flame, it was as cold as though no fire had ever touched it. A weird, uncanny little elf is this will-o'-the-wisp of ours. But will-o'-the-wisp does not stand alone. As I have wandered about the solar system, poking my stick into every ant heap and rabbit hole that I have come across, I have hit upon quite a number of things just as elusive and just as strange. There are lights that appear when they are most needed, lights that seem to be specially designed for the guidance of those who see them, and yet lights that will lure to his destruction the benighted creature who dares to follow them. Take instinct, for example. Sometimes, as though to beget in us a fatal confidence in its infallibility, it leads with the most amazing accuracy along a hideously perilous and intricate path. See with what skill it guides the mason bee. This odd little creature builds her miniature palace out of the mud. When the tiny chambers are dry and ready for occupation, she hunts for spiders. Having caught a spider, she bites him in such a way as not to kill, but to paralyze him. Then laying her eggs upon his back, she deposits him in one of the cells which she has constructed, and so on until all the cells are full. She thus secures for her offspring, in the paralyzed spiders, a plentiful supply of fresh food with which to nourish their earliest infancy. Here the quality that we commonly call instinct seems to have almost reached perfection, and it would be interesting to be able to trace the age-long history of adventure, experiment, and disappointment by which so elaborate a system has been built up and perfected. Surely the kindly light that leads the mason bee so shrewdly can be safely trusted by everything and everybody. And yet, and yet, travelers on the Amazon have frequently commented upon the fate that overtakes vast numbers of boa constrictors when the river is swollen with its winter floods. Instinct teaches these huge reptiles, in the autumn, to take a full meal and coil themselves up for their long sleep. But strangely enough, instinct does not teach them where to hibernate. As a consequence, great numbers of them coil themselves up below high water mark, with the result that, when the rains come and the river rises, they are swept away by the swirling waters. Instinct tells them what to do and when to do it, but it does not tell them where to do it, and for the want of this essential item of information, they miserably perish or pass from the insects and the reptiles to the animals. Let us take the case of the lemmings. Every now and then, says a traveler who has seen the strange phenomenon in Norway, every now and then all the lemmings in a district congregate in a great army, as if some fiery cross summons has been sent round and move in a bee line for the sea. 
Over mountains, through forests, across foaming torrents, they make their impetuous way. Many are lost, many drop, many starve. But on and on the army marches for the sea, and when they reach the sea, all plunge in and are drowned. What perverted instinct can account for this? In this case, it would almost seem as if instinct had not merely forgotten, as in the case of the boa constrictor, to tell the creatures something that they need to know, but had deliberately set herself to lure them to their doom. Is not this a will-o'-the-wisp? One of the novelists to whom I have referred tells of a peculiarly grim adventure. His hero, hopelessly lost in a lonely and unfamiliar district, sees all at once two lights. One, a long way off, appears to be passing through a clump of trees. Its bearer is apparently on the fringe of a forest. The traveler shrinks from the thought of entering the gloomy woods at dead of night and turns wistfully towards the other gleam. It is nearer. It advances slowly, though with irregular and jaunty movements, across the level country. He decides to follow it and is soon up to his waist in the swamp. As it turned out, the distant light was the lantern of the men who were searching for him. He had been ensnared by the glow of the will-o'-the-wisp. Now something very like this is happening every day. There are well-known cases of conflicting instincts, or of an instinct that speaks simultaneously with two contradictory voices. Darwin, in his Descent of Man, gives several instances of this peculiarity. The most curious, in his judgment, is the occasional conquest of the maternal instinct by the migratory instinct. The maternal instinct is one of the most powerful emotions known to naturalists. It will lead the most feeble, the most timid, and the most shrinking creatures to face the greatest dangers in direct opposition to the law of self-preservation. But the migratory instinct is also amazingly strong. A confined bird will let the proper season beat her breast against the wires of her cage until it is bare and bloody. The migratory instinct causes young salmon to leap out of fresh water in which they could continue to exist and thus unintentionally to commit suicide. And it sometimes happens that these two instincts, the maternal and the migratory, appeal to the same bird at the same time. Thus, late in the autumn, swallows, house martins, and swifts frequently desert the tender young in their nests. Darwin thought that, when the bird is near her nestlings, the maternal instinct is probably the stronger. But when, out of sight of the nest, she comes upon thousands of other swallows congregating for their overseas flight, the migratory instinct assumes the ascendant. When arrived at the end of her long journey, and the migratory instinct has ceased to act, what an agony of remorse the bird must feel if, from being endowed with great mental activity, she cannot prevent the image constantly passing before her mind of her young ones perishing through cold and hunger on a bleak and distant shore. Is not this the very experience that the novelist describes? Is reason much better, or even conscience? Reason is a most marvelous faculty, and yet, in the straits of the soul, it is a most erratic guide. Two statesmen, equally able and equally conscientious, survey the same facts, reach diametrically opposite conclusions, and become the leaders of hostile parties. Two scientists, equally discerning and equally experienced, examine the same phenomena and build up theories utterly antagonistic 
the one to the other. Two judges, equally learned and equally just, hear the same witnesses tell the same stories. They convince the one judge that truth is with the prosecutor, whilst the other is no less certain that it is with the defendant. If I trust so treacherous a guide too implicitly, may I not find myself floundering in the bog? Conscience, too, is wonderful, almost divine. And yet, as has often been pointed out, when the Lacedaemonians whipped boys to death as an offering to Diana, when the mother of Xerxes, as he departed on one of his expeditions, buried alive a number of youths to propitiate the subterranean powers, when the Carthaginians placed their little children on the red-hot lap of Moloch, they were following conscience and making terrible sacrifices for her dear sake. The men who burned the martyrs were often as conscientious as the martyrs whom they burned. When, on the 1st of July, 1416, John Huss was bound to the stake, a poor old peasant woman came to the place of execution, bringing with her a faggot. She begged that it might be added to the pile round the stake. But when it was flung on, she was not content. It must, she said, be close up to the victim, so that it might help to consume him. "'Have I ever harmed you or yours?' asked Huss. "'That you are so bitter against me?' "'Never,' was the reply. "'But you are a heretic. "'Wood is scarce this year, "'and the winter, they say, is like to be a hard one. "'I can ill afford the faggot, "'but I would fain do God's service "'by helping to rid the earth of an accursed heretic, "'and therefore I make the sacrifice.' "'Oh, holy simplicity!' exclaimed the martyr and reaching out his hand, he drew the faggot toward him and placed it against his side. Perhaps, he said, the faggot may be a means of grace to both of us. Give your body to be burned, said Conscience to John Huss. Give your faggot to burn him, said Conscience to the peasant woman. Is not this the will of the wisp? Then spake Jesus unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And with that golden word of clear guidance ringing in our ears, we say goodbye forever to the will o' the wisp. End of part two, chapter two, recording by Ross Moore, Indianapolis.